0: Welcome back to our study of the pastoral letters. Um, This is 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, by the way. That's the the letters that are part of what we call the pastoral letters because they're written to Timothy uh, who is leading or pastoring in a a congregation or many congregations in Ephesus. He is doing mission or ministry work in Ephesus. And so Paul is trying to give him some wisdom because it's a really tough mission field he's working in and he's really struggling. It, we're at the end of 1 Timothy in uh, chapter 6 today. We, we, we took a look at chapter 5 last time, and it gives some very specific instruction to the, to the church in Ephesus for how to deal with certain situations. And I want to remind you that as we're looking at this, we're doing it understanding the context that it was written in, okay? And I want to remind you of that because we have to ask the question when we read things like this, should every church be operating this way? Should we all be doing things this way? Uh, The answer is no, probably not, because this is what Paul was intending for Ephesus. I don't think he wrote these words with any idea that Christians around the world be reading them in 2022. I just don't think he ever considered it. I think he probably thought Jesus was coming back long before 2022. If he knew that we lived this long, he'd probably be disappointed that Jesus had not returned yet. But Nonetheless, we sometimes take this and say, oh, if this is what Paul said, then this is what we have to do. No, this is what Paul said to Ephesus. Let's take the principles and let's apply them to our situation and see if maybe it looks a little different than Ephesus, and we we have to understand that. And I say all that because chapter 6 is going to begin with similar instruction, and it's going to be kind of hard. In fact, it's going to be uh, challenging. Maybe it causes us to cringe a little because it's not going to be anything close to politically correct, and it might even be frustrating for us as Christians. Sometimes we've come across Scripture that deals with a subject matter that is significant to our history, or maybe it has a, a, a place in our life or our understanding that troubles us. And what we want the Bible to say is X, Y, and Z. We want, we want, the, we want whoever's writing, whoever's speaking in the Bible to come out and say, this thing is wrong and oftentimes that doesn't happen, and we're frustrated and disappointed by it. Paul's going to be dealing with the issue of slavery. Uh, I think we've settled that issue in this country and in many parts of the world already. I don't think any of you watching this video think that slavery is okay. Uh, there was a time, and it's true in almost every part of this world, there has been a time where every nation has considered slavery of some variety to be the norm. Uh, our country, the United States, ended it legally. Um, we fought a war uh, in which it was involved. We have legislated against it, and I think the general moral and ethical understanding of the concept of owning another human being has, has shifted away from slavery being the norm. Uh, history tends to shift that way toward greater justice and, and more equality, and, and it has been doing that. The thing is, when we go back and we look at people dealing with the issue, sometimes they don't live up to our standard of what we consider to be correct. We understand and believe slavery is wrong, unethical, and immoral, and that a Christian person would not own another human being. That's what we understand because we see it as an evil. And in fact, it is. The problem is if you take it out of this context where we've experienced what we've experienced and come to that conclusion and you go back far enough, you'll find a time where that understanding and idea wasn't present. And so how faith interacts with that is different because what people understood and knew and believed was different. Paul lived in a time where he could not fathom slavery not existing. Just couldn't understand it. There would it, it wasn't even a question. And by the way, slavery um, in the first century in, in this place probably looked more like indentured servitude or people paying off a debt. It was much less of ships and trade and auction blocks like what we think of in our history in the United States. It was a lot more of debt and, and indentured type servitude that were they engaged in. Um, but we look, at, at, we look back in history and we expect history to take uh, the, the history uh, that we share in terms of faith to take the same tone on a subject that we would take in 2022. What we have determined ethically and morally and that we understand to be right and wrong in 2022 was not necessarily what was understood in the middle of the first century A.D. And it may not be what's understood 100, 200, a millennia from now. So we've got to not have chronological arrogance here. And we shouldn't let it trouble us that Paul doesn't outright just condemn slavery. And it's not him not condoning it is the same as or him not condemning it is the same as condoning it. Don't even go there. That's Paul just simply lived in the context he lived in. This was a reality of life. It was not questioned on the ethical and moral moral level that we've questioned it on and come to a conclusion about. So he dealt with Christians. Who were dealing with the issue of slavery in that context. We have to read it, and we have to be able to separate what that context was in Ephesus and what that principle is that that Paul is trying to help us understand. So be patient with Paul. This is an area that receives a lot of criticism both inside and outside of faith communities. It, It doesn't deserve such criticism. Paul did the best with what he understood. And we have to do the best with what we understand. There are some things we're doing right now that we're teaching, that I'm teaching, that we understand that are going to be flat wrong a thousand years from now. That's okay. That's okay. But let's don't look back and say, shame on them. Okay? Let's look back and say, what can we learn? And what we can learn is a lot of things, actually, because Paul has some wonderful insight here into relationships and how our secular relationships are impacted by our spiritual relationships. So let's talk about that, okay? Because slavery was not the battle Paul was fighting in the first century. That's the battle we fought in, you know, in the, in the um, 1800s, in the 19th century uh, uh, here in the United States, and, 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 and it needed to be fought. That's not the battle we're fighting. Uh, that's not the battle he's fighting uh, in First Timothy chapter 6. okay? So let's read it. and let's look for the useful part here for us. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants, that means you're under slavery, bond servant, uh, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Well, you would think he would say, uh, let all you slaves and bondservants out there who are Christians rebel against your masters because you only have one master, and that's, that's Jesus Christ and run away. No, in fact, Paul himself followed the custom and the law by sending a runaway slave back to his owner. And before you clutch your pearls at such a thing, the slave and the master were both Christians who were known to Paul. And he sent him back because he wanted to fulfill the law and the custom, and he wanted to redeem the relationship between two Christians and tell them that they should think of each other as brothers and treat each other accordingly, even though the world had brought them together in a different kind of relationship. And while fulfilling those obligations, they must be mindful of their spiritual connection. What Paul did there was in keeping with the law and custom of the time, we would call it evil, perhaps, or wrong, but he called it living a peaceful, godly life and doing what was right by everyone so that he didn't cause anybody to stumble and sin. And then when that relationship was set right, it could be edifying and glorifying to all around and to God. That's in Philemon, if you want to look up that very short book in our New Testament, that letter dealing with a man named Onesimus. That's for another day. So what he says here is, hey, if you're a slave you need to understand that your life is under greater scrutiny when you're a Christian. People see you and they say, okay, well, um, you know, this is a, a Christian and and so he must be living according to his belief in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that look like? So they're watching to see how you're going to live. And Paul says, if you're a bond servant, then you need to be giving the greatest honor. You need to be working harder than anybody. You need to be showing your love for Jesus in your service, even to your master, even in a relationship that we might consider unjust. If you're going to be a slave, as a Christian, you better be a really good slave because you've got a name to live up to, and that name is Jesus. And he says, do that because we don't want, we don't want to, to besmirch the name of Christ. We don't want to besmirch God's name. Now he says, those, of, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So, you might find yourself in a situation where you're a servant, an indentured servant, a bond servant, um, in debt to someone or a slave, and you believe you're a Christian, and they are a Christian. The slave and the master share a faith. Now, this, this seems intuitive to me. I don't know if it is to you, but I've experienced things like this. You have a relationship with someone outside of a work context, okay? If you've grown up in a small town, going to small town churches, this happens all the time. You know, you might be serving, uh, waiting on the Lord's table there next to somebody who you are the direct supervisor of come, come Monday, right? And you're equals at that table, but you're not when you get to work. And managing that relationship can be challenging because there's a tendency for us to think, oh, I share a faith with you. I see you at church, we have this connection, we're part of this community and this family, and so I'm going to be a little more laid back in our working relationship, in the secular relationship, in the relationship society's constructed for us to have. And Paul says, "Don't, don't slide into thinking you can get away with something or taking advantage of your shared faith to be less than respectful and honorable to your master. And um, and so if you have believing masters, don't be disrespectful just because you're brothers. No, in fact, you need to be even better because you're trying to exemplify Christ and how he's changed your life. And those, he says, who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay, so what are we to make? I mean, this is just two verses here, right? It's a couple of verses that deals with this relationship of slavery. And he says, look, Your relationship as Christians, that's what comes first. Your bond in Christ is what comes first and foremost. You're no longer just slaves and masters. You're brothers and sisters. And you should live that way and treat each other that way. He says a lot of the same stuff to Philemon, by the way, worth a read. You should treat each other accordingly, but also you should understand that other people will see you and how you live and treat one another and they know your faith, and they're making judgments about your faith based on how you act. All right, moving on to uh, the end of verse two and end of verse three. Teach and urge these things, Paul says. Verse three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up With conceit and understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. All right, let's stop there for a minute. That takes us through verse 7. Okay, now we're getting into, there's that word again, doctrine. And he's warning against people who teach a different doctrine. Paul has it pretty well locked down what his doctrine is and what the doctrine is that's supposed to be taught in Ephesus. And he says, if anybody says anything different, don't listen to them. And that can lead us to conclude, okay, well, we've locked down a set of rules for our church, right? Uh, And then if anybody comes along and says anything different, we disregard them because we don't listen to them. In fact, we attack them because we've got it figured out and locked down. Okay, there's a problem with that what defines a false teacher for us in 2022 in a typical church environment is very different from what a false teacher looked like in the first century. And one of the reasons why is this. In the first century, at least when when these letters were written, there was no Bible. You got to remember that. This wasn't when he, when Paul talks about being aware of false teachers who teach false doctrine, this is not someone who's coming in you know, to teach a Bible class that is teaching you something vastly different about, uh, you know, some book chapter verse. That's, that's not the, uh, the, the definition because they didn't have book chapter verse. We talk about false teachers like someone teaching something different than what we understand the Bible to say. Our definition of false teachers is really more like differences of interpretation. Now, there are false teachers But the definition of a false teacher uh, in the first century and really today is you have gone outside of the scope of the gospel as we understand it. That's a false teacher, and that's a false doctrine in Paul's context. Paul says, hey, if anybody comes teaching something different than Jesus, you need to put a stop to that. Okay, put a stop to it because Jesus is the gospel. That is the whole thing. And if someone teaches something outside of Christ as a gospel to you, then you know that is false doctrine. See, the problem is we have redefined false doctrine. At some point, we got all these books put together, this whole thing put together, and we decided what church looked like. We locked it down and said, okay, great, this is what we'll do, and and Paul says if anyone teaches something different than this, we should not listen to them. That's not what Paul said. We're operating on a completely different set of rules than Paul was. Paul was warning against the teaching of something other than Jesus as the core foundation of their faith. He's not talking about people debating Scripture because they didn't have Scripture yet to debate. We have the luxury of Scripture, and so we have redefined false doctrine to be someone who has a different opinion of the Scripture than I do. Okay. False teachers and false doctrine are those who teach things outside of the scope of Jesus Christ as the gospel. That was the problem in Ephesus. It wasn't a debate over scripture. They didn't have scripture. It was teaching something besides Christ. And today, what we would consider to be false doctrine would be something outside of the scope of what we understand the gospel to teach. Differences of opinion on what the Bible says, maybe those things are worth talking about and debating, and that's okay, without calling someone a false teacher. I can say you disagree with me. I can say I disagree with you. We differ on something. One of us may be right. One of us may be wrong. And we might want to figure that out on certain issues. Or we may just go with grace and peace with each other on other issues. Either way, we should really be careful using the phrase false teacher because we're putting someone in a category that's pretty serious. And um, Paul's criteria for putting people in that category is very different from our own. So we've got to remember that. Um, And and he describes this person as really enjoying the fight. They really want to stir up controversy and create friction and create a lot of drama. And why do they want to do that? For their own gain. Because there's something to be gained from it. Um, There are groups of people who are part of special interest groups in this country. Uh, Well, in every country, but but it's a political thing. And uh, this is not a political statement. Um, because situations occur, whether it be an act of violence uh, or an act of injustice. When these things happen, we are left to try and sift through and figure out what to make of it. And there are a certain group of people who peddle in controversy, and they show up on the cable news channels, and they show up on social media, and they show up in the streets, and at protests, and at riots, and at demonstrations, and on both sides of whatever cause we're talking about, and they speak out, and they are lower than dirt, my opinion. Because whatever side of the political argument you're on, whether it be violence or racism or or any number of social or political issues, the fact that people would take advantage of those who are hurting and suffering to try and score political points, and uh, improve the donations to their organization that they're running to combat that, it really sickens me. It does. It's something I have a real problem with. And these same people show up at every event. Every time something happens, it falls within the purview of their special interest. And I'm sure they may be greatly concerned and genuine in their concern for that situation, but they are gaining from the pain Mm -hmm. and suffering of others. They are improving their financial situation by social unrest. It is in their best interest that things not go well. I have a tough time stomaching that. I think those same people exist in the first century in Ephesus. I do. I think those same people are here in Ephesus trying to create controversy, create drama, start fighting, and then step in and say, well, you know, and draw people away from the gospel for their own benefit. I think that's what is being, uh, Paul is, is warning against here. Okay. But godliness with contentment. This is verse 6. But godliness with contentment. Now, he does this in contrast because in verse 5 it says these people imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, these people have done great damage to themselves and hurt themselves and hurt others because they were carried away by the love of money. And we don't need to put caveats on it and say, well, money's not evil, it's the love of money, it's the root of all it. No financial needs are very real. We live in a world that's governed by commerce, and we have to engage in it to survive. Understood. I don't think anything about the gospel teaches us to remove ourselves from society writ large. Uh, I, think, I think we are separate from society in some ways, but we don't, we're not closed communities. Uh, we, we, we live in the world around us, the one we're trying to evangelize. But we have to hold ourselves above certain things, And this world craves money. And the things that this world will do to get money uh, are oftentimes outright evil and destructive. And when we become obsessed with the money, we do destructive things. I've known people who have experienced this. Wonderful, genuine, loving Christian people that set out to do good things. Maybe they're even out there raising money to try and do it. And eventually they start seeing that number go up and up, and up, and up, and, and, and maybe they still feel like the more we can bring into this good organization, this good work, we can do this, this, and, and eventually, though, I have seen, I've seen with my own eyes, people with genuine desires to do good and to share the gospel with the world fall prey to the need for more, more and more, bigger and bigger, even with good intentions, It causes us to behave differently, and the things we'll do for it are just disgusting sometimes. And Paul is warning, these people who are stirring up trouble, they've been led away by this, and you need to guard yourself. Learn how to be content with what you have, because that lack of contentment will drive you to evil and to hurting others in order to get more money. Um, Now let's go to verse 11. We're going to finish out. 1 Timothy here. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's saying, live up to what you said you wanted to be a part of. You want to be a child of God? Be a child of God. Live up to it follow after it, chase after it. I charge you, he says, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Paul does to Timothy, live a content, peaceful, godly life. Stay away from bad things and keep doing good things. People are going to see you. They're going, to, they're going to equate what you're doing and how you're living with the name that you bear in Jesus Christ, and you need to be steadfast and keep working hard till Jesus comes. Uh, remember that you've confessed his name and live accordingly. That's what Paul says. Um, keep it above reproach until uh, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, now, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and the, and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Note that he doesn't say... And as for those rich people that we were talking about just now, see, it seems that in Ephesus there was an elite group of people that was causing problems. And Paul says these, you know, upper-class Christians. He doesn't say that they must take a vow of poverty. No. He says the rich people need to understand you know, you got to be careful. Hey, if I had a lot of money, I could do a lot of good things. But I could also be totally disgusting and evil. You see, I've got a dark side to me. All of us do. All of us have that evil side that can be swayed if the right circumstances come along. And Paul says for a lot of people that's money. It's money. And those who have it you know, they just need to be aware of what they're, what, what they're dealing with. They're at risk. They're in danger. They have a weak spot that can be exploited by the devil. And they've got to guard against it. So not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge For by professing it, some have swerved from faith. Grace be with you. A warning there as Paul closes the letter to Timothy. Watch out. This world's dangerous. This world is temporary. It's fleeting. Nothing is for sure. Nothing is rock solid and nothing stays for very long. The older I get, the more I realize that that's true. And the older all of us get, the closer we get to the day when we will give an answer and we will stand there in the throne room of God. Have we become entangled with the world, with the priorities of the, that the world has and the thoughts and the trouble that the world has, or have we held ourselves back from that and put our trust in God for contentment, happiness, and protection? Well, if we're to be like Timothy, if we're to follow Paul's advice, we must commit ourselves to that very thing that we can lead the church onward to growth and prosperity. We'll start 2 Timothy next time, and we'll move through that as well as Titus as we wrap up this study of the pastoral letters. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time.